0: Please open your Bibles to Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 through 38. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 884. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, this is the king of the jews may god bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word
1: thank you houston let's pray almighty god we thank you for the reading of your word and i pray that you would help me now in the proclamation of your word that Jesus Christ might be lifted up in all his glory his grace his mercy and his love for sinners like us we ask in his name amen one evening in 2015 during a bible study at Emmanuel uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina a 21-year-old white racist walked in. He participated in the Bible study, and then he began shooting people as they were taking prayer requests. Nine people were killed, six women and three men. And, of course, the murderer uh, was Dylan Roof. I assume most of us remember this evil tragedy, even though it happened... uh, about seven years ago. You may even remember the comments of the family members of those who were killed as they spoke to Dylan Roof at his bond hearing. Here are some of the comments. The daughter of Ethel Lance said to Dylan Roof You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again, but I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me, you hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you, I forgive you. The husband of Myra Thompson said to him, I forgive you, and my family forgives you, but we would like to take this opportunity to call you to repent, to change your ways. And then an unnamed relative of Depayne Middleton said, For me, I'm a work in progress. I am very angry, but we are are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so I have to forgive you. These are remarkable responses to human evil. Jesus Christ inspired these responses, and many like these, throughout the past 2,000 years. Uh, he, this, these kinds of responses are in response to Jesus and what he said to those Roman soldiers who had stripped him naked and nailed him to the, to the cross, callously casting lots to divide uh, their, or his clothing among themselves. I assume you understand how difficult it must have been for those uh, relatives of um, those people that were killed at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal. And how, how difficult it was to speak face to face with Dylan Roof, and more so to forgive him, pleading for his repentance and salvation. This morning, I want to impress upon you what it meant for Jesus to pray to the Father, to forgive those uh, Roman guards, and then I want us to consider what it means for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, to be forgiving people as his followers. When the Roman people crucified uh, people, they didn't do it out of sight, uh, in the back roads, Rather, it was the opposite. They always did it along major roads so that those who were hung on the cross might serve as an example of the might and the cruel power of the Roman Empire if someone should get any ideas of rebellion. And so this was the case with our Lord. He was crucified very publicly. And he was crucified with criminals on his right hand and on his left, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, before he was nailed to the cross, Jesus was stripped of all his clothing. The pictures you've seen doubtless have him wearing some sort of linen cloth, but that was... That was not the common practice for uh, Romans when they crucified someone. The common practice for the Romans was to strip the person completely naked to add to the public humiliation and shame. And so this gave the person being crucified a complete sense of helplessness, hanging on the cross, and being completely exposed to the world and being able to do nothing about it. And the shock to one's system of being crucified typically caused them to be unable to control their bodily functions, which predictably caused the onlookers to mock and jeer. Our Lord endured this disgrace... An honor for us, Corey Ten Boom, whom uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. Uh, she was arrested along with her sister Betsy, and she was sent into a Nazi concentration camp during World War II uh, for hiding the Jews from the Germans. I think she was about fifty years old when. She was sent to the uh, concentration camps. In her book, The Hiding Place, she speaks of Christ's humiliation as she suffered her own shame and dishonor. So this is a little bit of a lengthy passage. She says, Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at our sides position as we filed slowly past the phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of those, these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He, talking about Jesus, hung naked on the cross. I had not known, I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed the, at least the strip of, of, or scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning... She's talking about when Jesus was crucified. There had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stuck out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy. Corey Timboon said. They took his clothes too. Ahead of me. I heard a little little gasp, "Oh, Corey!" And I never thanked him. After they stripped Jesus, they began the process of crucifying him. He would have been nailed to the cross with heavy spikes through his hands and through his feet. The initial shock would have rendered him shaking and cramping. The physical pain would have been excruciating as his nerves were torn and stretched. In order to breathe, he had to push up on his feet that were impaled by a metal spike in order that he could get breath in his diaphragm. Several descriptions of death by crucifixion also mention the torture of insects burrowing into open wounds, which the person on the cross could do nothing to prevent. The horror is awful. But for Jesus, the real suffering of the cross came when he took our sins to bear God's judgment in our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake... God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you are weighed down by the guilt of your sins, as if you are are stuck in your sinful habits so deeply that you are losing hope for all things, losing hope that you'll ever escape, if you're wondering if God could ever love you because of your sin, I want to urge you this morning, look at that awful cross with Jesus hanging there. He on that cross bore your sin. He bore your sin to carry your guilt before the justice of the Father. To suffer your shame, to endure your judgment. He did it for you. Look to him no matter where you are in your heart of hearts. The Lord knows you, and he endured that cross for sinners. That was his whole point in being hung between two criminals, to let us know that he was crucified as a criminal for criminals, for the unworthy, for the undeserving. The Lord knows full well that you cannot change your heart. And He knows that you cannot cleanse your own nature. But He knows that He can do both of those things. He not only went to the cross to bear your sin, He also hung there on that cross to purchase for you a new heart and a godly nature. Look to Him. Ask Him to give you a new heart and a godly nature that yearns after Christ and for righteousness. The old life will wear you out. I guarantee you. You've probably experienced it. It's a hard task, Master. Give your old life to Jesus. Ask Him to kill it so that He can give you His nature. A new heart that loves him, loves his holiness. In verse 34, this is where Jesus prays for the Father to forgive the soldiers. But I'm going to skip verse 34 for the time being, come back to it near the end of our uh, sermon. What I want to do at this point, however, is paint a fuller picture of what Christ was enduring from those for whom he prayed. In verse 35, while the people were standing, uh, standing by silently, and I would suppose maybe in sympathy, the rulers, the religious rulers, could not contain themselves. Their ugly hatred came spewing out of their wicked soul. They were acting like juveniles, scoffing at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. They admitted That he indeed did save others. They didn't even try to deny it. But they were so filled with hatred towards Jesus that they started acting like immature teenagers, scoffing and mocking him. You know, and that's not the only unwitting testimony to Christ's identity as the Messiah that these hate-filled religious leaders gave because their their ridicule-fulfilled prophecy about the Messiah in in, uh, Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 through 8. Listen to Psalm uh, chapter 22, written by King David, a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. It says, But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who seek me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These wicked religious leaders unknowingly were quoting Psalm 22. They were unknowingly showing that Jesus Christ indeed was the Messiah. And then the Roman soldiers joined in with the religious leaders in their mockery in verses 36 and 37. And so we read, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself sour wine was supposed to be a mocking gesture. Kings were supposed to drink wine. So they offered him some nasty, cheap wine. Probably tasted more like vinegar than wine. As a a possible toast, maybe, to his glorious reign there on the cross. As they were mocking him. The Lord Jesus, barely a week earlier, had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey while the people were, pro- were proclaiming him to be the true Messiah, the king of the Jews. Plus, there was a sign that was hanging over Jesus' said. It said, uh, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate had put it there. I think he had done it. One, to mock Jesus at some level, but I think even more uh, to the point to mock the religious leaders because he had found Jesus to be uh, innocent, and the religious leaders demanded that he go to the cross anyway. And so the soldiers reasoned that if Jesus were the real king of the Jews, he'd be able to save himself. And so this is the environment around the cross while Jesus was, was nailed there. Naked, helpless, racked with pain, preparing to suffer the wrath of God for the sin of the world, while these uh, religious leaders and these soldiers were mocking him, and the crowds were standing there gawking. Typically, people on the cross would use whatever energy that they could muster to spew out of their their mouths the most vicious venom that they could think of and direct it at their executioners. And so, invariably, I would think their uncontrolled rage made these people on the cross even more of a spectacle as they are cursing and screaming and calling down Curses on the executioners and everyone around them. But this is not our Lord Jesus. He did not answer them a word. As a sheep before, its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, except to pray. He did not pray for himself at this point. Rather, he prayed for those soldiers who stripped him bare, who nailed him to the cross, who were mocking him as a counterfeit king. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. This was very early on in the crucifixion. Jesus was doubtless shaking uncontrollably from the shock of the nails and the jarring plunge of the cross into the ground. But Jesus found the fortitude and the strength to pray, but not for himself, but for his executioners. This is our Savior J.C. Ryle said, as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. We have before us the very heart of the mercy of God. For Jesus to plead for his father to forgive his executioners while hanging on that cross demonstrates Jesus' love for sinners in bold colors and for him to pray for the very men who are putting him to death, this shows us that none of us, no matter where we are, is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Where are you this morning? Are you tempted to think you're beyond God's mercy? You're not. He prayed for his father to forgive his executioners. Now, in light of Christ's love, mercy, desire to forgive, what does that mean for us as his followers? Well, we're called to be forgiving people. Quickly, do a scan over your life history. Who are those who have wronged you? What has been done to you that seems unforgivable? Unforgivable. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter six, verse fourteen, He says, "For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you." Or Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty-two, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, <coughs> forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." Or Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How has the Lord forgiven you? 90%? 98%? No, 100%. How should you forgive others? As the Lord has forgiven you. Now, forgiving others doesn't mean turning a blind eye to the wrong. If the person has wronged you and is unrepentant, they will likely wrong you again. Forgiving someone does not mean that you open yourself up to abuse. But it means loving them. It means wanting what is best for them. It means praying for them, for their salvation. This is not how the world does it, but it's Jesus' way. And because it is His way, He will help you. He has not given us His Spirit for no reason. His spirit has taken up residence in our soul. He will help us forgive those who have sinned against us. He will help us because, as His followers, we should follow Him in forgiving others. As we pray together, Lord Jesus, we see not only your example of forgiveness, We see your mercy. We see your salvation because even as you were praying for those um, Roman soldiers to be forgiven, you were dying there on the cross as the sin sacrifice for sinners, as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews, as the only Savior from our sins. O oh Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to be forgiving people because we have a forgiving savior. We ask in his name, amen.